Well, please, if you have your Bibles, take them and open them to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Over the next few weeks, we're going to look at lessons learned in a pandemic. Take a little bit of a break from Colossians and capitalize on some observations that I've tried to make for the church in uh, the recent weeks, recent months. And we'll be uh, starting this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We're going to do something today that I have never done before in a um, sermon. And that is not focus on any specific text. But take a biblical principle, a biblical subject, and look at multiple texts uh, and, and walk through it. So we won't be camping anywhere, per se. We'll be looking at several different places and trying to string together several different concepts we find in, script, in Scripture to uh, make this one larger point. We'll begin, though, reading here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, a passage we are familiar with, but one that will set our hearts and minds in the right direction. So let's read this Scripture, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Verse 12 to the end of the chapter. Paul writes and he says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. And if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as He chose. That's a very important verse. Verse 19. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. That's also an important verse. Verse 26, If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. 
And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts. And I will show you a still more excellent way. That excellent way is chapter 13. Love. So I knew a few weeks into our isolation that I wanted to tackle some of these subjects. I began to identify what I thought was important for us to, to observe and learn lessons from. The first one is the importance of Christian community. We need each other. And it's very important that we strive to be together in a very specific kind of way. So this morning, as uh, is probably evidenced in 1 Corinthians 12, I want us to look at the importance of Christian community. That the people of God coming together and being together matter immensely to God. And that actually God's plan of redemption and even God's character and nature and attributes cannot be fully or even rightly understood apart from His people gathering together. I first want to take some time to define what I mean by the phrase Christian community. And I want to do that first by highlighting what it isn't. And then I want to give you a technical definition of what it is before I finally simplify it for us this morning. Let me tell you what it isn't. In the English language, this word community is defined as this. A social, religious, occupational, or other group sharing common characteristics or interests and perceived or perceiving itself as distinct in some respect from the larger society from which it exists. Another definition is a group of men or women leading a common life according to a common rule. Those de definitions sound good. They, they look good and parts of them are absolutely true. But that is not at all what Christian community actually is. And so I tried to define the word fellowship. The English language defines the word fellowship as communion between members of the same church or an association of persons having similar tastes, interests, etc. That definition is also not what Christian community actually is. It's too weak. It falls far short of what the Bible actually talks about when it talks about the people of God coming together as the people of God. Anytime we use the identifier or the qualifier Christian, that word Christian, before that word community, we are talking about something wholly and entirely different from what the world can conceive on its own. We're not just talking about something radically different. We're, we're even talking about something supernaturally different. What you and I are called to as Christians, what you and I are called to in existing as the people of God is something entirely different supernatural, not explainable in worldly terms, worldly concepts, or worldly perceived practices. 
So, when you think of community, when you think of fellowship, we cannot think of it in the way that the world tells us to think of it. We cannot think of it in the way that the world shows it. We mean something altogether different when we call it Christian community. The Bible, both Old and New Testament, when it talks about being the people of God, it involves things like intentional diversity. Different people existing together in harmony and peace and unity. When the Bible talks about the people of God, it involves things like sacrifice. Laying down your opinions, your desires, your dreams for others. Specifically your brothers and sisters in Christ. It talks about, most notably, love. That there's a distinct kind of love that Christians have for each other. And even though they're called to love the world at large, they love each other differently than they love the world at large. We'll talk about that in a moment. When the Bible talks about Christian community or, the, or being the people of God, it talks about a unique kind of care for one another. We see that in the uh, Acts of the Apostles, don't we? When they start selling their possessions that they might care for one another. They're sacrificing and loving and caring. The Bible talks of openness. A sort of um, transparency that's to exist in the church. The Bible talks about a certain kind of commitment that's pretty high on our spectrum or our priority list of commitments in this life. When the Bible talks of Christian community, it treats it as a command. It's not optional for the believer. It consists of things like an invasion into your privacy. That's not easy, nor always fun. But that's how the Bible talks about Christian fellowship. The Bible talks about it as being binding upon Christians. It talks about it being necessary for Christians. Things that, quite frankly, we have to grow towards. They're not even natural in our fleshly sense. The Bible talks about Christian community being much, much, much more than simply spending time together or sharing common interests or hobbies. In fact, the Bible talks about Christian community as something more than having anything in common aside from glorifying God and Jesus Christ. Ultimately, the Bible will culminate and say that it finds uh, Christian community finds its sole expression in the local church. In a formally recognized commitment to one another. Public commitment to one another. Which means that to some degree it carries a sense of separation from the world at large. Christian community is not just perceived as being distinct from society around us. It is distinct from society around us. Which means the way we relate to one another and the kind of fellowship we're talking about, the kind of fellowship and community that the Bible talks about is very different from the relationships or fellowships or community that you might see anywhere else in the world. We're not like 
the Rotary Club or the Quilting Club or the Gardening Club were different. Since Christian community finds its sole expression in the local church, we have to say it is therefore a very, very exclusive group. It is for believers only. Which is why we have to be very, very clear on what church membership means and is and who gets to join our church, our fellowship, that so far as we are able to tell, it is believers only. Now, all of that makes me come down to write my own definition. And this definition is bulky and it's technical, but I want to share it with you first so I can explain it very briefly and then I'll simplify it. So here's my definition of Christian community. Christian community is an exclusive group of diverse people chosen by God and united in relationships under a set of core beliefs with a core purpose of glorifying God through the gospel proclamation and spiritual growth. There will be a test at the end and you have to memorize that. Let me highlight just a few points in that definition. I'll tell you why I wrote it that way. I want to unpack this word, this phrase, exclusive group. I've touched on it already, but it can't be overstressed. Not everybody belongs to the local church. And not everybody in the world can be classified as the people of God. We're going to walk through the scriptures as a whole in a moment, and we'll see this truth just abundantly clear. But the people of God are specifically chosen out by God to be His people. It is an exclusive group of those who belong to God. So all the privileges and all the benefits of being in the community of God's people aren't available to the lost. Nobody can just stroll in and claim themselves to be a part of the people of God. It's an exclusive group that God alone permits entrance into. It's an exclusive group that's diverse. When Paul uses this analogy in 1 Corinthians 12, he's talking about a body, but he's very intentional to say, not every member of the body is identical. So, we have to understand, as the Bible explains Christian community, it is never, never saying that you deny your personality, you deny your characteristics, or you conform yourself into a certain particular mold. God has created you as you. And you are called to be holy as you. And you are called to be godly as you. And you are called to glorify God just the way that He made you. Yeah, we're wrestling with the flesh. We're putting things off. But being in the church doesn't mean we all have to be alike. And I'm going to make the argument later. It means we all shouldn't be alike. I believe the Bible teaches that unity admits diversity is what glorifies God the most. And I might have some pretty choice words here in a moment to say about that. Next in this definition of mine. I intentionally use the phrase chosen by God, and I've referenced that already. 
God alone determines the entrance into his family. You cannot come into the people of God without Jesus Christ. And all those who are in Jesus Christ are in the people of God, among the people of God. We are united in relationships. And relationship needs to, that word right there needs to carry its fullest sense. And I'll talk about it again in a moment, but simple church attendance is not the same as church involvement, and only church involvement produces real Christian community. So if you don't know your brothers and sisters on a deeper level than just mere acquaintance or a how you're doing on Sunday morning, you're not participating in the benefit and privilege and command of Christian community. Relationships are required. And that involves sometimes digging in, asking questions, certainly spending time, and sometimes getting messy. Christian community is being united in these relationships under a set of core beliefs, fundamental Christian doctrine, what the Bible says, what the Bible teaches. And for that very core purpose of glorifying God. That's why we're together. That's why God has brought us together. That's why God binds us together. That's why God ties us and connects us together. That's what all our time and energy and efforts to be spent towards. We are to thrive in our relationships together so that God might be uniquely glorified in us. It doesn't matter what your church name is, where your church is located at, your denominational affiliation. Those things are the task of every church. Now let me share my simple definition. Maybe this one will stick with you a little better today because this is really what I mean this morning. Christian community is a people marked out by God as His own to glorify Him and enjoy the intended benefits of each other. You and I are to be marked out, unmistakably marked out by God in this world so that we might glorify Him and enjoy the intended benefits of each other. And that happens in the local church. The local church pursuing Christ together with all the benefits of pursuing Christ together in an exclusively Christian relationship. The Scriptures don't ever allow for a separation between salvation and belonging to the people of God or identifying with the people of God. If, if you can find an instance in Scripture, especially the New Testament, where someone is saved and not called to exist and identify in a local assembly of the people of God, I would be amazed that you probably wrote that in yourself. It's just not there. So to be a born-again Christian, you are to be then a part of a Christian community. And to be a part of a Christian community, you must be and identify with a local church involved in a local church. 
So you might hang out with Christian friends, you might have Christian family members, you might be a part of Christian clubs and Christian organizations, but you cannot have what the Bible talks about as Christian community the way the Bible talks about it without being involved in a local body of believers. And this is what I mean when I say not just attendance. You're attending a local church gathering and even belonging on the membership roles of a local church gathering is not the same as church involvement. Involvement means relating to each other. Involvement means serving one another. Involvement means knowing each other. Involvement means caring each other. And my argument is you cannot have Christian community the way the Bible says Christian community is to exist unless you are involved with each other. We are to be involved. So. As we talk about Christian community. I want you to know that it is something so much deeper than simple time together or simple com common hobbies. That it only truly exists in the life of a church. And when I talk about the church this morning, I'm not talking about programs or ministries. I'm talking about the church in its essential makeup and nature as the people who are redeemed. Christian community is not just ministry and program. It's something much more than membership. But it may not be anything less than that. Now, let's begin to consider some scripture. And I want to show you that it's been God's eternal plan from the beginning all the way through the rest of eternity to mark out his own people to be identified as his people for his glory. There's this, um, it's probably not recent, it's probably 30 or 40 years old, this trend in which the church is viewed increasingly in a negative sense, uh, especially among younger people. The church is viewed as a man-made invention that Christians need to liberate themselves from. It's more of a hindrance than a gift. And most people, People in evangelical circles may not say that, but most people live that way, don't they? Most Christians in our society today treat the church as optional. They treat the church as unimportant. They treat the church as a hindrance to their life. And if we're being honest, we've even felt like the church is a burden. But it's always been God's plan to gather his people together. In all of their differences and all of their disputes and all of their conflicts and all of their hardships and all of their beauty and their mess and their their glory and their lack of glory. It's always been God's intention to gather his sheep into the sheepfold. So whether you're confessing that the church is a man-made invention that we need to liberate ourselves from, which I doubt anyone here is saying that, or whether you're practicing that with your attitude and your motives and your desires, this is a burden on me, I don't want to do this, I don't want to be here, I don't want to be a part. Either way, I hope to show you this morning from the Bible that that 
shouldn't be the case in your life. That really, those views and those understandings, those attitudes, those feelings stem from a false or maybe just inadequate understanding of God's plan for all of eternity regarding Himself and regarding His people. Francis Schaeffer, an old Christian philosopher and theologian and apologist, once said that false beliefs beget false practices. So to avoid false practices of neglecting to meet together, maybe we should have a right belief. Let's start all the way back at the beginning in Genesis chapter 2. You can turn there if you want, Genesis 1, Genesis 2. God is creating in those accounts. And what is His chief creation? Man, kind, man and woman. Adam and Eve. Now, interestingly, as God creates Adam and Eve in the creation account, He makes it abundantly clear that they are distinct beings, distinct creatures. They have distinct features, uh, distinct attributes. They exist distinct from everything else. In fact, it is only man and woman that God says are created in His image. So, Adam and Eve... Being distinct, even from the beginning, from the rest of creation, means they're not like the other critters or birds or creeping animals or other things that are made. They are set apart and they are special to God. They enjoy a special relationship with God. They enjoy a special relationship with each other. And then that theme carries through the early chapters of of Genesis, this tracking of this special enjoyment of God. We find it as early as Genesis 4 with Abel. And then we really see it pick up in Genesis 5 as we start to follow this line, this lineage that God has kind of chosen out. Seth and Enoch and Methuselah and Lamech all the way down to Noah. And what do we see about all of those people and all of those names and all of that existence, we find as soon as Cain murders Abel, really as soon as Adam and Eve disobey God, what we find is some follow God and some do not. And God had chosen His people out and made a people for Himself that were distinct from everyone else. And then because of sin, they now must be distinct from each other. Noah is a prime example. He and his family were the ones chosen out from the rest of the whole world. Noah becomes a type of Adam, doesn't he? And the world is going to restart with him and with his family. God preserving his distinct creation, chosen out from everyone else and everything else, that he might continue to mark out his people. This really ramps up in Genesis as we skip a few generations, though not many chapters, and we come across a pagan man named Abram, who will eventually be changed and called Abraham. God makes a promise to Abraham that begins this very 
formal, very official relationship. We call it a covenant that begins to set his people apart from everyone else. Look in Genesis chapter 17. And Abram is given a sign for this very purpose to be distinct from everyone else. Not just distinct for the sake of distinction, but so that everyone will know he belongs to God. He is God's. Let's read a chunk of Scripture here. Genesis 17, verses 1 through 14. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. It's remarkable, really, in the whole narrative of Scripture, how early the, the establishment of Israel begins to show up. And it's not going to carry that name until Jacob later on. But it's unmistakably happening in the promises made to Abraham, even all the way back into chapter 12. And now God even, even more so formalizes it. Uh, makes it more official in chapter 17. Here's a mark. You will be set apart. You will be chosen out. You will be marked out, distinct, and identified with me. That distinction continues with Isaac, with Jacob, who will become Israel along with his sons. And what is also remarkable in the grand scheme of God's revelation of His Word is that we cannot, He does not allow us to understand Him rightly apart from His people. 
most, if not all, of the Old Testament and the New Testament is bound up in God revealing Himself as He works historically in and through and among His people. This is a big deal to God. He's elected to make Himself known in the world through His relationships with those that He's chosen out. Fast forward with me to Exodus chapter 3. We are now firmly away from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. We're past Joseph. We're into the life of Moses. Israel's existing as a nation pretty much numerically in Egypt. But there's not a Pharaoh who knows them. So they're in enslavement. Yet God still has them as his own. Exodus chapter 3 verse Seven. Then the Lord said in the burning bush to Moses, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. This is one of the earliest references to, to Israel as God's people. Ownership. Relationship, connection, my people. Flip over or look over to verse 10. We find it again. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. It's, it's identified there. It's unmistakable. And then Moses actually goes to Pharaoh. In chapter 5, verse 1, Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. And then all of a sudden, right there, God has made it unmistakably public. These are my people. We find it again in chapter 6 of Exodus. We find it all throughout Exodus. Flip over to a few more passages. As is always my problem, I must pick up the pace. Deuteronomy chapter 4. I want you to see some of these very important passages. While you're turning there, I want to look at one other thing. I do want to go back to Exodus chapter 6 and read to you. So just listen very quickly. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant, 
Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. God not only wants the world to know, He wants the people of Israel to know. You are my people. You are my possession. And I am your God. And I will care for you. And I will protect you. And I will deliver you. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse, verse 37. Just taking snapshots here. Verse 37 tells us, God loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with His own presence by His great power. Driving out before you nations greater and mightier than you to bring you in to give you their land for an inheritance as it is this day. Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. You know what's striking in those two verses? Deuteronomy 4, 37, 38, 39, those three verses. Not only God's identification with a certain group of people, He's even driving other people out. It's unmistakable all throughout the Scriptures. There are some who belong to God as His and some who do not. In the New Testament, that will be based on faith in Christ. That's the dividing line. Deuteronomy chapter 7. Perhaps the most powerful text. Chapter 7, verse 6, 7, and 8. Maybe a little more. We find this theme expressed in 1 Peter chapter 2 when Peter tells even believers at that time, you are a chosen people, royal priesthood. Chapter 7, verse 6 of Deuteronomy. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. Holy. You're set apart. You're distinct. You're consecrated to God. And then it says, the Lord your God has chosen you. To be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you. And is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. That the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments to a thousand generations and on and on and on and on. That text is explicitly mentioned and written to Israel, but it is unmistakable that the principles are true for all Christians, for all who belong to God. That there's no inherent worth in us, but God has chosen us as His treasured possession to be His people out of all the peoples because He loves us. 
was certainly true of Israel. It's certainly true for us today. And there are, there are so many, so many more texts we could look at. Let's fast forward to the end. Revelation chapter 7. And you know where I'm going. Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, verse 10. John's got this glorious vision. And he says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. Where? From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice. Salvation. Belongs to our God. Who sits on the throne. And to the Lamb. From the beginning to the end. God is marking out people. From all over as his own. Distinct. To belong to him. And to worship him. And to glorify him. What's beautiful in this verse. To me. Is that. This isn't a great multitude of Americans. This is a great multitude from everywhere. Iraq and Iran and Saudi Arabia and China and Taiwan and Japan and Russia and England and Canada and Mexico and Argentina. Maybe even Hawaii. All people, all tribes, all languages Gathered together as God's people. And that's what it will be like for all eternity. God has been and is marking out people to be together as His own. It is no mere accident. It is the very intentional and purposeful plan of God. That there be people by His own love and design Who have special relationship with himself and with each other. Let me just toss out a few New Testament references for you. Because the New Testament is loaded with it. You might not even be able to read a chapter of the New Testament without some reference to the people of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 26-31 we find this, this chosen theme again. Not many of you, Paul says, were of noble birth or... or and let me just use my word, smart or eloquent or whatever else, but God chose that which is weak to shame the strong. That which is foolish to shame the wise. God chose you out, not by anything of yourself, but by His own choosing, His own love. Jesus taught His disciples in John thirteen thirty five. The world will know that you are mine by the love that you have for one another. It's unmistakable as Christ teaches His disciples how they are to relate. You are to relate as brothers. You are to care for each other and love each other. In fact, He says in John 13, the way you love and care for each other will be proof positive that you belong to Me. It will be the mark of your faith. Your relationship together will have immense importance. It will even bear witness to the Gospel. 
1 Corinthians chapter 12. If we could, if I could turn back there just a moment and highlight a few things that we read. Verse 18, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. Verse 24 and 25, God so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. In other words, Paul's using this whole illustration here to say, you are a, a group of diverse people, but you're one people. A people that exists by God's design and placed by God's design. Not divided, not distinct, but one. Ephesians 2, we, we must flip over there. I was accused in these last few weeks of uh, preaching to a camera and making my sermons longer. And I said, that is true. And I will try to shorten them. And I'm failing. Ephesians 2, verse 11 through the end of the chapter. I beg you to read it. But what he's saying there in this passage, 2, 11 through the end, really all of 2, is because of the gospel, that's verses 1 through 10. And the way you relate to each other is different. 11 through the end. Jew and Gentile. The two most polar opposite groups. Socially, ethnically, worldview wise. Well, there are not two of you anymore. In Christ, there's one. You take whoever is the most polar opposite of you right now in your views, in your beliefs, in your desires, in your passions, in whatever else you want to bring up. Take the person most polar opposite to you. And if they are in Christ, you are one with them. It, the gospel and our, our relationship as brothers and sisters in Christ transcends all our differences. Nationality, race, career, you name it. First John chapter four, verse seven eleven, seven through eleven, not the gas station, seven through eleven connects our love for each other explicitly to our salvation. If you love God and have been loved by God, you will love the people of God. Without doubt. That's why we should never entertain the lie that someone can belong to Christ yet hate the church. Or never be a part of the church. Because God tells us in His Word that the byproduct will even be a measure of love for the people of God. Hebrews 10, 25, we know this one. Don't neglect or forsake the meeting together with one another, especially as the day draws near, because you're going to need each other. Uh, and then I threw in another one, Matthew 6, just to show you how interlaced it is. Matthew chapter 6, we find the Lord's Prayer. And you know what's remarkable about the Lord's Prayer? is it's corporate. Deliver us. Lead us not into temptation. Forgive us. Provide for us. 
All of that to say God working in and through His people is an inescapable reality of Scripture. And so to dismiss being among the God of people, to dismiss involving your life with the, God, the people of God, to dismiss living in the church, is not some trivial matter. It, it, it's of immense importance to God. God has called you to be pulled out of this world and association with this world and to be identified with His people. You know that is why it is so serious for some of our brothers and sisters to be baptized in certain parts of the world. Because they are publicly identifying with the people of God. I want to ask the question, why? Why has God chosen this? But I do not have time. But there is a very clear reason why. Two, specifically. And maybe that will bring you back next time. For now, let's just consider this reality. I have learned in recent weeks because of this isolation stuff and not gathering together in person. I have learned and seen how the people of God have suffered. Not suffered in the sense of persecution, but struggled in their faith. Struggle in their encouragement. Struggle in their spiritual disciplines. Struggle in their emotions and all of those things. And Why is that? This is my ultimate point. The reason is because we are not created by God to be alone. By all means, we might enjoy it from time to time. Have kids, and you'll learn that. Sometimes we like being alone. But we're not created to be alone indefinitely. And the major lesson we learn when we're not able to gather together is how much we need each other. And why do we need each other? Because this is God's plan. God's plan is to bring African American and white American and Hispanic American and other nationalities, Taiwanese and Japanese and Chinese and and Russian, all together worshiping the same God in Christ. God has made it His plan to mark out His people over and above social constructions and social distinctions and any other distinction we might fathom. To bring us together to glorify Him and to help each other grow in the faith. I hope you are learning and seeing how important it is to be together. And that God has reminded you in your heart that something's just not right when I'm not with the people of God. And the reason that is is because us together as the one body with many members, 
fulfill our calling to glorify Him in this world. And without that, without that unity, without that fellowship, we don't fulfill that calling. My hope and my prayer is that you'll contemplate God's grand plan of having us involved together as one body for the sake of His name. And how important that has proven itself to be in these last several weeks. Father, Your Word is full, full of truths about You and about us and specifically as we look this morning about Your relationship to us. We're not made to be alone. Adam's creation is proof of that. You said it wasn't good for Adam to be alone. That's something innate within us. Something, some way that you've created us to be together. We need each other to grow. We need each other to live. We need each other to spur one another on and encourage each other and hold each other accountable. And ultimately, we need to be with each other as Christians to glorify you. Yes, we may glorify you with our individual lives. And in fact, we're called to do that. But there's a unique, special kind of way we exalt you together as your people. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't miss the importance of being together. That we wouldn't neglect the gift of being in your body. That we would have today just grabbed a taste Just a taste of how important it is for us to exist together in your name. To be marked out, gathered together to exalt you. Help us, Lord, to do that. To prioritize this church family for the sake of your exaltation. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.